Father, we come before you, and oh, we, we praise your name, Lord, because you alone are worthy. As we were singing a moment ago, such a wonderful song to sing, those truths to be reminded of. And as Ray was reading in Revelation chapter 5, so wonderful to read that text and then to sing that song. Father, we in and of ourselves are weak, we're helpless. And without Christ, there is no one that can open the scroll. Without Christ, there is no one that can bring Your promises to pass, to accomplish them, to bring about Your Word, to fulfill it. It's Christ and Him alone. He alone is worthy, and because of that, He is the only one that is worthy of all glory, honor, and blessing. And we pray and ask that He would be seen that way this morning, Father, as we open Your Word and as we look here at Galatians chapter 4 and what Paul is going to be showing us. I pray that we would see the glory of Christ as we were reading in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. The glory of God, Father, Your glory shining full strength in the face of of the Lord Jesus. That's what we desire to see this morning in this text. So may you be with me as I seek to proclaim it, as I seek to explain it, uh, to preach it, and may you be with those who are sitting there before me as they, they follow along. May they receive it with open eyes, open ears, with open hearts, and with, with glad hearts, Father, with joy. May your word accomplish its purposes. May it strengthen the weak. May it humble the proud. May it bring back the wanderer, and may it save the lost. All in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you were to read in the, the gospel accounts, and by gospel accounts I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So if you were to read in those books of the Bible... One of the things that you would notice, or one of the things that you have noticed if you've read through those books of the Bible, is that the Jews and the religious leaders, one of the, the primary things they loved to say or to proclaim was that they had Abraham as their father, that they had descended from him and had all of the proper marks of obedience that the law required, referring to the Mosaic Law, the, the Ten Commandments, and things like that. They had all of these marks that it required, circumcision and the foods that they ate. To, to them, they kept it to a T, and they had Abraham as their father. They, they were eternally secure, according to them. That's what it meant. God was pleased with them because after all, like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 proclaimed, they thought they were not like other men for these reasons. But then you have people like John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus show up on the scene and say things like this to them. First passage I want to, to share with you is Matthew chapter 3, and this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist speaking. And he's speaking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. This is what he says to them. He, John the Baptist, he was 
calling people to Him. He was preaching the good news of the Messiah to come, which was Christ. He was calling them to repent and to believe in the gospel. And then one day the religious leaders come on the scene, and this is what He says to them. He says, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. So before these religious leaders could even speak a word out of their mouths, John the Baptist, he knew what their mentality was. He knew what they were going to say. And before they could speak a word, he looked at them and he said, don't even begin to say that you have Abraham as your father. I don't want to hear that. Because you can bet that God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Now I want you to listen to what Jesus says to them. This is coming from John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son, Jesus talking about Himself there where He references the word Son, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my Father and you do what you have heard from your Father. Now, if you were to continue reading in those verses, you would see that these Jews continue to say to Jesus that Abraham is their father. And that they even go on to claim God as their father. But Jesus would go on to respond to them and pretty much say, you're wrong. He would respond and say to these Jews who were claiming to have Abraham as their father, he'd say, no, you're, you're wrong. You're mistaken. Yes, Abraham may be your biological ancestor, ancestor, you know, your, your physical father, but he is most definitely not your spiritual father, and nor is God. Because if that were true, then you would love me and you would hear my words. No, your father is the devil. Jesus would tell them that. You have heard and you have done according to your father, which is the devil. And you can imagine that they didn't really care to hear that very much. They didn't, they didn't like that Jesus told them that. And in fact, later on, they would pick up stones and try to stone Jesus for that very reason. But in the midst of both of these passages, do you see what's going on? Do you see what's happening as both John the Baptist and Jesus confront the Pharisees, the Jews, the religious leaders in this way? 
These people were enslaved to sin and they did not even know it. They thought that just because they had Abraham as their ancestor and all the right marks of obedience, the physical marks of obedience, that they were right with God. That they were living a life pleasing to Him. But both Jesus and John the Baptist were trying to show the religious leaders and the other Jews that by just having Abraham as their earthly father is not enough. You don't receive salvation through physical descent or through physical marks. In other words, you cannot receive salvation through something that you can accomplish. No, in order to be a true child of Abraham, a spiritual child of Abraham, is to trust in God's promises as Abraham did. And we've been seeing that in Paul's letter to the Galatians. He's been bringing that up over and over again in chapter 3 when he's contrasting faith and works. How did Abraham become righteous before God? He didn't do anything to earn it. No, he believed God and it was therefore counted to him as righteousness. And that's what Jesus meant when He told the Jews that if Abraham was truly their father, they would do what Abraham did. They would have faith in God's promises as Abraham had faith in God's promises. And they would believe the words of Jesus for all of God's promises point to Christ. Now, what does all of this have to do with Paul's letter to the Galatians and our text that we're going to be looking at this morning? Well, Paul, like Jesus and John the Baptist, has been trying to show these first century Christians and us what true children of Abraham are like. True children of Abraham are marked by faith in God's promises, not by works of law. And true children of Abraham are no longer enslaved to the law or to sin. They have passed from slavery in to freedom. That's how Paul has primarily been describing the difference between those who are children of Abraham and those who are not, which is what we've been seeing throughout chapters 3 and 4. The language of faith and works being primarily in chapter 3 that I just mentioned a moment ago. And then the language of slavery and sonship being primarily focused upon in chapter 4, which we've been looking at uh, in the past couple of Sundays. Now, as we come to the end of chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, Paul is going to continue to talk about the difference between those who are truly children of Abraham and those who are not. And he's going to do so in a way that sounds similar to how Jesus and John the Baptist rebuked the Jews and the religious leaders in John chapter 8 and in Matthew chapter 3. So look with me now in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Let's read the verses together. Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, 
while the son of the free woman was born according to through promise was was born through promise now this may be interpreted allegorically these women are two covenants one is from mount sinai bearing children for slavery she is hagar now hagar is mount sinai in arabia she corresponds to the present jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those who are the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Last week, in verses 12 to 21, one of the, the main things that we were looking at was how Paul's tone had changed from one of firmness and agitation or discipline. Remember we were talking about kind of how a, a parent disciplines their child whenever they find out they've done something against their, their will or what they've taught them to do. And they're, they're kind of shocked, they're, they're surprised, and they at first they may come about in a, an agitated way. How could you do this? They're astonished. That's kind of how Paul was, or that's how we've been seeing him in his tone. But last week, it changed from this, this firm tone, this tone of agitation, it changed to a tone that resembles the, the love that a father has for his child. Paul showing his genuine affection and and love for the Galatians there. Paul showing that he does indeed care for these brothers and sisters in Christ that are located in Galatia. Yes, he is talking firm to them in the majority of the time, but he does love them, he cares for them, he is genuinely concerned about them. And just as he is concerned about them, so so he is concerned about you, even though you've never met Paul. Paul's been dead for over 2,000 years. In writing his words, he is concerned for you. Now as we come to to verse 21, you can see that Paul has returned to using a, a firmer tone as he once again confronts them about their desire to be under the law. So he's returned to this firmer tone, whereas last week we were seeing him, we were seeing him have a more, a more gentle tone about him. But he's changed. He's returned to his firmer, his more agitated tone whenever he says, and you can see that in verse 21, this directed at the Galatians. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Do you not listen to the law? You can hear a little bit of sarcasm in Paul's words as you read that verse, can't you? 
He does this because He wants the Galatians to see just how ridiculous their desire to be under the law really is. So He says to them, Okay, you who say that you want to be under the law, do you actually know what it says? And when He's, when he's using the word law there, He's talking about the, the Old Testament, God's Word at that time, their Bibles. Do you know what it says? I mean, do you really listen to what the law says? Not what the Judaizers are saying to you. You know, the false teachers that had infiltrated their churches and trying to interpret the law for them and trying to convince them that they need works on top of their faith. Not what they say, but what the law actually says. What God and His Word actually says to you in it. Because if you did, you wouldn't want to be under it. Now what follows in verses 22 down to verse 31 is Paul seeking to show them what the law actually says. And he's going to do this by going to the Old Testament like we've been seeing him do throughout chapters 3 to 4. He's going to the Old Testament, bringing up these passages of Scripture, these examples, and leading them to it and showing them what the Bible actually says. Interpreting these things rightly. And in doing this, he's showing them why they shouldn't desire to be under the law and why we shouldn't desire to put ourselves under the law or anything that depends upon what we can do, what we through our works can produce. Paul desires to steer us away from all of that, from those things, from that mentality, that way of thinking, this works-based righteousness. And he's going to do this in three parts. In verses 22 to 23, Paul is going to bring up the story of Abraham and the two sons that he had, one by Hagar and then the other by Sarah, his wife. Then in verses 24 down to verse 27, Paul's going to show how the Bible puts forth an allegory within that story. And then thirdly, in verses 28 to 31, he's going to show how this applied to them and how also it applies to us in our day. So that's the three parts that Paul kind of breaks this up into. That's the three parts we're going to follow and, and look at. So the first thing that Paul brings before us is the example of, of Ishmael and Isaac, this story, biblical story in the Old Testament. He reminds them of that story. He takes them back to it. He's taking us back to it as well. So look down at verse 22. Paul writes, For it is written, it's written Galatians. And whenever Paul says, for it is written, he's talking about, this is what God says in His Word. For it is written down in Holy Scripture, in the Bible. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So Paul takes us back to this story 
of Abraham and the two sons that he had, which were Ishmael, the firstborn, and then Isaac, the secondborn. One was born by a slave woman, which was Ishmael. His mother was Hagar. And the other son, Isaac, was born to a free woman, which was Sarah, Abraham's wife. And the way that all of this happened, the way it all went down, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this story, but I'm going to run through it briefly. The way all of this went down is that God came to Abraham and made him a promise that he and his wife, Sarah, would have a son, even though they were both very old, way beyond the years of childbearing. So he came to them, promised that they would have a son, even though they were both old and Sarah was unable to have children. So Abraham heard this, he heard the promise that God made to him, and he believed it. He believed God. Well, after that, after that initial promise that was made, about ten years had passed, and they still had no son. So in a moment of weakness and failing to trust God's promises that He had made to them, Sarah goes to Abraham And he tells Abraham to take her slave, which was Hagar, as a wife and to have a son through her. You know, maybe it's supposed to be this way. Maybe we're supposed to have a son through Hagar. So go, Abraham, take my my slave, my servant girl, basically sleep with her and have a son through her. Well, the plan worked. Hagar bore a son and his name was called Ishmael. However, as you would continue reading in the story, you'd see that God rejects Ishmael as Abraham's heir, even though Abraham cries out before God and says, Oh, that Ishmael would walk before you. You know, that he would be accepted in your sight, O God. But he's rejected. God rejects Ishmael as Abraham's heir because Ishmael was not the son that God had promised. He was born according to the flesh. That is, he was born by what Abraham and Sarah could accomplish on their own, by their own works. And God does not operate in that way. He does not require the help of human hands or human works. He does not require our help to bring about His promises. So another 15 years goes by. And then Sarah, she has a son. They call his name Isaac. I know we hear this story a lot, but I just want you to feel the weight of that. Picture your great, probably great, great grandmother Having a child. You know, just, just try to imagine that in your mind. You know, what, how would you respond if you, you know, you go over to grandma's house, you know, you t- just hang out where, hey, grandma, how are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm going to have a, a son in, you know, nine months. I mean, how, would you, how do you respond to that? And your grandpa, he's a hundred. You know, both of them are, as the Bible would say about Abraham and Sarah, good as dead. Both of them as good as dead as far as their bodies go. Worn out. There was no way that Sarah could have a son on her own. 
You know, she had already gone through the, the phases of not being able to bear children anymore. But yet 15 years goes by and God holds true on His promise. She has a son and they name him Isaac, which means laughter. And it's funny because when God made this promise to them, both Abraham and Sarah at one point in their, in their life laughed at God. Abraham fell on his face and laughed at God. Sarah, she was in her tent. She kind of did it in a hiding way. She laughed, and then when she was confronted, she denied it. But they both laughed at this promise. And it's so it's kind of ironic that their son's name is Isaac, and it means laughter. God's just saying, I told you so. You know, I told you you were going to bear a son. Who's laughing now? But what was, what was God's point in doing it this way, right? Why would God bring about His promise in this way? God's point in doing all of that in this way was to show that His promises are accomplished, they're brought to pass by His power. Not by what we can do. Not by what you can do. Not by what Abraham could do. Not by what Sarah could do. What they could accomplish through Hagar. It's about God. His glory. His promises. His faithfulness. Making much of Him. His faithfulness. And that's the whole Bible. Not just the story, by the way. All of the Bible is focused on God, His glory, His faithfulness, who He is, what He says, how He brings it to pass, and how really we we kind of just in a way sit back and just, just trust Him. That's the Bible. That's the biblical storyline in short for you. God doing over and over again him showing his faithfulness, him proving it to his people. So that's the point. God accomplishes his promises by his power, not by what we can do. Now, in verse 24, Paul takes this story, story that we just that he just brought up in verses 22 and 23, the story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Ishmael. He takes this story and he says this. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. I want to go ahead and be upfront and honest with you about this verse. There are difficult verses in the New Testament, and most pastors, theologians, scholars name this one in the top five. It's how difficult this passage is, just really because of this word that Paul uses. These things can be interpreted allegorically. And there's a big debate. I want to save you the... It it goes on and on and on. We'll try to explain it to you in a gist. The gist of things. So that word that Paul uses allegorically, when he used it when he wrote this letter, it meant something a little bit differently of how we would use the word allegory now. Which an allegory is basically a... You take something and you use it in a way that it represents something else. So take, for example, John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Most of you know that book. It's a very famous book. 
Well, that book is based on the Christian life. It's a representation of what the Christian life is like, his story. That's an allegory. Well, in a way, Paul's doing the same thing, but at the same time, it's different. And so the debate goes on about, okay, what does Paul exactly mean about uh, whenever he uses this word, allegory, what's he trying to get across, how are we to interpret it? From what I've read, from the videos I've watched, pastors I've listened to, this is what I understand it to mean. This is what I understand Paul to mean. So I'm going to read this to you. This is my understanding of what Paul says in verse 24. By saying that this story is an allegory, I think what Paul means is that what happened within this biblical story, historical story, Biblical story is a representation of other particular events that have taken place throughout Scripture and continued to represent what was happening in Paul's day. That's what my understanding is of what Paul is talking about here when he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And this is why I, I don't really think that the phrase, now this may be interpreted, is very helpful. So if you're reading in the ESV, you read, now this may be interpreted allegorically. I have a problem with the, whole, the word may there. Because Paul himself is not putting these things forth in a way to where the Galatians can just say, well, you know... Maybe we can interpret what Paul's saying here in that way, and maybe we don't have to. Maybe, maybe not. Paul's not doing that. Paul's not talking about all this in a way that allows the Galatians to kind of do whatever they want with what he's saying here. No, Paul is rebuking them because they did not see this in their Bibles. He is rebuking the Galatians. Why didn't you see this, Galatians? Look back up at verse 21 where he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Do you not listen to your Bible? First part of 22. For it is written. It's there. In Scripture. In the law. In the Bible. It's there. Then down in verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? They are being rebuked because they missed something that they were supposed to see, according to Paul. That's in the Bible. So this isn't something that we can just say, well, maybe we can take Paul's advice here, and, you know, maybe not. Maybe not. Yes, there's a bunch of debate about all the things that are going here, but one thing that is critical is, like I was saying a moment ago, Paul is taking this biblical story And it represents something else. Particular events that happened throughout Scripture and continue to represent things in His day. So what what were they supposed to see? What other events are represented by the story that we see in verses 22 and 23? Let's, Let's read them together. Beginning verse 24. So Paul says, These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who, do not, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So I'm going to try to walk through this together rather quickly and see if we can see how Paul is laying this out, his, his allegory as we see it here. So remember, like we just said, that Paul is rebuking the Galatians because they did not read their Bibles correctly. They did not read their Bibles as they should have been reading them. And the Judaizers, by the way, who are misinterpreting these things and trying to convince them that they need works. They have read these things wrongly. So let's walk walk through these uh, things together. So the two women, Paul says these women are two covenants. The women he's referring to are Sarah and Hagar that he brought up in the story previously. In verses 22 and 23, Hera and Sagar are two covenants. The covenants represent the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant which was given at Mount Sinai. The new covenant is the one that Jesus Christ established when He came on the scene. Which is what we we talk about whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper like we did last week. We're reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Jesus says, Now this is the new covenant which is established in my blood. So they represent those two covenants. And he associates Hagar with the old covenant, Mount Sinai. Now why does he do that? Why is Hagar associated with Mount Sinai? Well, what did he bring up in the story? Hagar was a slave, right? And her son, Ishmael, was also a slave because he was rejected by God. Now, if he would have been accepted by God, he would have no longer been a slave because he would have been Abraham's heir. He would have been Abraham's true son. He would have no longer been a slave. But that's not the case. And so Paul is saying here, Hagar's like Mount Sinai because she bears children into slavery. No matter what Hagar could do, all the children that she could have would become slaves because she herself was a slave. Now think about what Paul's been talking about in chapters 3 and 4 when he's been talking about the law. He's been talking about how only the only thing that the law can do is create slaves, right? Because the law does not have the power to save. It does not have the power to make you born again, right? It does not have the power to give you new life. It has the power to tell you what to do and what not to do. But it does not have the power to give you a new heart. And so that's how she associates with Mount Sinai. Because when God gave the law, remember the Israelites misunderstood it. And they tried to do it. They tried to obey. They tried to basically say to God, we will do all of these things and earn righteousness through them. They missed the whole point of the giving of the law. And so the law 
could only bear children for slavery. All the children that the law could bear are slaves for that reason. What about Sarah? She corresponds to the new covenant. Now Paul doesn't use that language. He doesn't go to the New Testament because it wasn't written at that point. He doesn't go to uh, where Jesus is in the upper room and He establishes the new covenant. He goes to a passage that they would have known, that they could have read. Which is why he says, but the Jerusalem above, talking about the the heavenly Jerusalem, the new covenant Jerusalem, the true children, is free. And she is our mother. Sarah is our mother. The mother who bears free children. True children. Children that are born according to God's power. And not man's power. Like Abraham and Sarah conjuring up the plan to have a child through Hagar. The true Jerusalem is not like that. The people of God, the true people of God are not like that. They're not born in that way. They're born supernaturally like Isaac is born. Through the promise. Through the promises of God. And so he says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And then again he says, for it is written. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, where Isaiah in this prophecy here is talking about when God would bring about His true children that He's been talking about all throughout the Old Testament. And so he says, Rejoice, O barren one, referring to Jerusalem as a a barren mother, a mother who hasn't been bearing the proper children, true children. She's barren. She's desolate. But he says rejoice. Why should she rejoice? Because God in His promises, according to His power, is going to bring about the true children. And where do you see that? You see it when Christ comes on the scene. And then He sends out His Spirit. And the Spirit indwells His people, gives them new hearts, and they obey from the heart. In that moment, true children are born. True promise children. Like Isaac. See, if I can try to simplify that, because I know that's, that's a lot, and you're just probably thinking, what the heck are you talking about? The point of what Paul is saying is that Galatians, if you would have read your Bibles in a promise-centered way, to use the language of Paul, or if you would have read your Bibles in a Christ-centered way, you would have seen, like with Abraham and Sarah, that God always operates on the basis of promise and not on the basis of works. And so you would see on Mount Sinai when God gave the law that His purpose, like Paul's been saying in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, it was all about the promise, what God was going to do, not what you could do. Pointing to when He was going to bring all of these things to pass. Not about your obedience somehow bringing these things to pass. You would have seen that if you read your Bibles in a promise-centered way. And you would have seen it 
In Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1, if you were reading it in a promise-centered way, because you would have been looking forward to the fulfillment of Christ. And that's why Jesus, think back to the, the passages that I brought up at the beginning of the sermon, that's why Jesus rebukes the, the Jews and the Pharisees. That's why John the Baptist rebuked them. Because they misunderstood the Word of God. They read it in the wrong way. They read it in a way to where they had goggles of works on. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? Where's, where's my obedience at? And Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is saying, and Paul is saying, you should have been reading in the way that you were asking yourself, what is God going to do? Where's His promise being fulfilled at? How is He going to bring these things to pass? If they would have read it in that way, then they would have believed Jesus as He says. They would have seen that He's the Messiah. And they would have realized that when He sent His Spirit on the scene and the church was born, that this is God's promises coming to pass that His true children were now being born. They should have read the Bible in that way, in a Christ-centered way. So how, how do we read our Bibles, all chapel? Do we, do we read them like the, the Pharisees did? Do, do we read them like the Jews did? Most of them anyways. Do we read them like the Galatians are guilty of here in chapter 4, like the Judaizers? It's so easy to do, isn't it? To read your Bible and to have at the forefront of your mind your own works. You know, what, what, what is God calling me to do? What, what do I need to, to accomplish to please Him? Now, don't get me wrong, God does command your obedience. But He commands your obedience on the basis of what He's done for you in Christ. You look to Christ and what He's done for you, and then you obey. Works come after that. Do we read our Bibles in that way? Do we read the Old Testament in that way? Because if you don't, Paul's rebuking you here. He's telling you, you've been reading your Bible wrong. And the only thing that you're going to bear, the only fruit that you're going to bear, is an Ishmael and not an Isaac. You read your Bible in that way, the only thing you're going to get is what you can accomplish, which is Ishmael, right? Like Abraham and Sarah. A child born according to the flesh, born according to works. That's the only thing you're ever going to get. But if you read your Bibles looking to Christ, or as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, looking to Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, then you'll be like Isaac, born of supernatural power, the power of God working in you and through you, causing you to obey from the heart. Now quickly, Paul continues, and he says, Now you, brothers, now you, Alt's Chapel, if you are indeed a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are like Isaac, you are children of promise. You are true children of God. You're not like Ishmael. And you're not like the, the present Jerusalem, as Paul says, who rejected Jesus, 
who failed to see God's promises fulfilled. You're not like that. Because you've clung to Christ. You've clung to who He is and what He's done for you. He's opened your eyes to see the promise. And then he continues in verse 29, But just as at that time He who was born according to the flesh persecuted Him who was born according to, to the Spirit, so also it is now. Paul's referring in that verse there back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. So when Sarah finally had Isaac and he was weaned, Ishmael laughed at this, this scene. And Paul interprets that as a mocking. Ishmael was mocking Isaac. And in mocking Isaac, he was, he was mocking God's promise that he had just brought to pass. And so therefore, Sarah says to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So in the Galatians context here, Paul was telling them, be like Sarah here. You know, cast out the slave woman and her son. Because people like Ishmael will not inherit the promises of God. Which meant, cast out the Judaizers. Get rid of their teaching. Get rid of that understanding. Get rid of this works-based righteousness. Cast it out. Because if you think that way, you will not be an inheritor of the promises of God. Cast that out of here. And so for us, we're called to cast that way of thinking out, that mentality out. You know, the mentality of we can work for our righteousness in some shape, form, or fashion. Now again, like I've been saying, it's not exactly like the Galatians would do. We're not going to try to circumcise ourselves. We're not going to try to keep the ceremonial food laws, things like that. But it's very easy to, to turn the focus from what Christ has done for you to what you can do. You know, what makes much of me? What makes me feel good? Instead of looking at what Christ has accomplished and having your confidence in Him, which is how the Judaizers, the, the Jews, how they all stumbled because Christ came on the scene and He said, unless you're like a child and believe in that way, you, you are not my follower. You know, you're not followers of, of Jesus if you do not believe with childlike faith that lands not on you, but on the promises of God. So we are called to cast this way of thinking out. We are called to read our Bibles in a Christ-centered way. And as verse 31 says, this great encouragement, he says, Brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You can guarantee that you will be persecuted because of your faith. Paul says it here and Jesus Himself said it. If you want to be my follower, you must Take up your cross and follow me. And people who take up their crosses and follow after Jesus experience suffering. Jesus took up His cross and He went to die. 
Crosses are not pretty pictures. And so we can guarantee persecution in some way because when you proclaim the gospel and who you are in Christ, that it diminishes the works of men, what you can do, and it's all about what God does, they're going to mock it. You know, nobody likes to be made little of, you know, their works, their accomplishments. Nobody likes for them to be diminished, made uh, small of. But this is exactly what God does. He says, you can't do it. You can't save yourself. You're totally depraved in and of your own works. You must put your faith in me, in Christ, my Son, and what He's done for you. And the world hears that, and like we were talking about in Sunday school, if you were present there, they think it's foolishness. They mock at it. It's the butt of their jokes, things like that. They think Jesus is a joke, and what He's done for us is a joke. So you can bet that you will be persecuted in some way when you proclaim the biblical gospel. But take courage, brothers and sisters, because we are not children of the slave. So although you will be persecuted, you're not enslaved anymore. You are children of the free woman. You are children of Sarah. You are like Isaac, inheritors of the promise of God. So if the world persecutes you, it's okay. Because this world's going to pass away and your inheritance is in heaven and it's undefiled and cannot be taken away, as Peter says in, in 1 Peter. Your inheritance cannot be taken away. You're a child of promise through Christ. So find your confidence there and cast out, as Paul says, works-based righteousness and pride in making much of ourselves. Let us embrace humility in the promises of God. And let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and this passage is, is very difficult, Lord. And I know that I did not preach it in a way that explained everything that's here. So I pray that you would help your people as they seek to study these things further and to know your word. But may they understand this. As Paul says, we are called to read your word as you have designed it. Looking for Christ and what He has done, your promises and how they are fulfilled in Him. Let us not be like the Pharisees or the Jews or the Galatians or the Judaizers who in their pride thought much of themselves and thought little of your promises. We thank you for who you are, for your character. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.